How did Jeff Bezos realize you could sell anything on the internet? Why did Bill Gates create Control-Alt-Delete? How did Synchronized Swimming prepare Christine Lagarde for international politics? What made Bob Iger bet big on Marvel? And what inspired Diane von Furstenberg to create the wrap dress? On The David Rubenstein Show, peer-to-peer conversations, I uncover the untold stories of the world's most successful leaders. Listen now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to For the Ages, a history podcast presented by the New York Historical Society and hosted by David Rubenstein. Join us as he deftly explores the rich and complex history of the United States with some of the nation's foremost historians and creative thinkers, because history matters. Hello, I'm David Rubenstein, and I'm pleased to be joined in conversation with Amity Schlaes, a best-selling author and board chair of the Calvin Coolidge Presidential Foundation. We are discussing her book, Coolidge, a full-length biography of the 30th president. Ms. Schlaes, thank you very much for joining me. Happy to be here. So when did Calvin Coolidge become a person of interest to you? I was at work on a book about the 1930s and the Great Depression, and the sort of headline of that book was they broke it or it broke and the it behind that pronoun was the u.s economy so before it was broken when it was still all right who made the u.s economy in the 20s and i was uh, actually writing a book about the 1920s economy and i sort of came to know president coolidge the, the big president of that period. And he was so interesting, I decided to attempt a full-length biography of President Coolidge instead of writing a book about the 20s. Okay. So what was it about him that you most admire today after having spent this much time researching him and writing about him? I suppose his awareness of the importance of markets for U.S. prosperity and for America's future and the importance of the health of the U.S. economy. Most presidents, when they're admired, are admired uh, for wars. They go abroad and do something, or they're admired um, as progressives for giant reforms. There are very few presidents who are admired for keeping the economy going. Sounds kind of boring, right? Yet it's hard to do, and Coolidge did it well. So I thought that was unusual. He's also a certain American type. I would say the agricultural lawyer type, some sort of more like a 19th century mayor or the judge in a local town or a farmer and has those values. And we don't see that as much today. I'm from the Midwest. It's more familiar in the Chicago area because of the surrounding farmland historically. So he, he was kind of a, an old type. Coolidge uh, didn't show off, didn't talk about his money, never marketed. And that it's just different from what we encounter nowadays. So that was fascinating. How long did it take you to research and write this book? Several years. And one reason is that Coolidge didn't make it easy. Coolidge does not have a presidential library as the presidents who succeeded him did. 
One gets the impression he wasn't sure he wanted a federally funded library, which was a bit of sanctimony on his part in addition to virtue. He didn't want the federal government to pay for him post-presidency, but he also hurt his own legacy by not allowing it to be collected in the way a systematic collection happens with a presidential library. So he was scattered and that was that deterred historians. And he also hid some papers or got rid of them. Not sure why. So you to research Coolidge, you have to go to Barry, Vermont, the Vermont Historical Society. There are papers there. We at the Coolidge Foundation at the birthplace of President Coolidge in Plymouth, Notch, Vermont, have some papers. There are some papers in Northampton, Massachusetts, which is where he practiced law and was his base most of his career, at the Forbes Library, the town library upstairs, and we leaned on those. And one of the things I did was I digitized his entire press conference set Um, which is easier today than it would have been 10 years or so ago, and made them available and begin an effort to get as much as I could of Coolidge online, because it just wasn't evident. So, So we're gradually at the Coolidge Foundation building the archive a historian would wish he or she had in commencing work on Coolidge. Library of Congress has some too. Has anything occurred since the book was published, which has changed your view or reinforced your view about Calvin Coolidge? One, I like the people who are attracted to him. He attracts a certain type. He he attracts uh, more quiet people. He you know he was a refraining president. He he believed inaction was a virtue. That's very rare or restraint. Uh, so he attracts that kind of person, and I got to know a lot of them, including members of the Coolidge family. They are second impression people, not first impression people. But also, I was on the editorial board of the Wall Street Journal, so I wrote a lot of tax editorials and so on. So initially, I came to Coolidge with an economic view. Since then, I've come more to appreciate, I would say, his legal attitude, his legal philosophy. He's not quite the same as an originalist Supreme Court judge, but he's closer to that. And he was a quite sincere federalist and a practicing federalist. And you saw that in his everyday life. Uh, Herbert Hoover, who succeeded him, farmed on the side with his son as a sort of exercise in productivity to see if he could get make more produce for less money. You know, he's an innovator focused on productivity. Coolidge farmed as a kind of exercise in federalism. Let's talk about where Coolidge was born and raised. Where was he born and raised? Who were his parents? Did he have any particular skills as a youth that would have separated him from the pack as a potential president of the United States? Not many. He was born in a place that stayed remote. All places in the United States were remote once. But where he's from, Vermont, Plymouth Notch, Vermont, which is along the mountains, there's green mountains and so on, is in a kind of bowl, and it the the grade of the uh, of the incline is steep, so the train doesn't like to go there. Even in the 19th century, when there were trains everywhere, the train did not go to Plymouth; it went to nearby Rutland, Vermont. Uh, people know that area today for skiing. That is Killington. That is Okemo. He went to secondary school, to boarding school in Ludlow, Vermont. So. That's where he grew up. His family were farmers and more than farmers. They were sort of a small town. 
a very small town. His father was sheriff. His father was justice of the peace. His father was a farmer. His grandfather tried to breed uh, animals, even imported, uh, I think, sheep from Australia, different horse stock. Very resourceful people because um, agriculturally speaking, Vermont is difficult. It's not the Midwest. It, the joke about that part of Vermont is you farm rocks. It's hard to farm there. It's practically not arable, which is why it's such a dairy state. And his father eventually started a cheese collective. So what's a cheese collective absent electricity uh, or a train to take your milk to market? It's an exercise in economic desperation. You want to make something that's not perishable that you might one day be able to take to market. And because you lack refrigeration, that was cheese. And that factory is still there, the Plymouth Cheese Factory, in a new iteration, to be sure. So the Coolidge's were not poor like the Lincolns, but they had to scramble every year and they didn't have a lot of cash. Farmers didn't have a lot of cash in that time. He did go to boarding school, but that was because there was no secondary school or even barely a, a, a basic school in his town. So kids would go down the road. He went to Ludlow. He sometimes walked 10 miles uh, he slept over and he boarded while he was in secondary school. He, uh, he also went to St. Johnsbury Academy, which still exists, um, and finally made it in uh, kind of by the skin of his teeth into Amherst. He was not a star student. In fact, in my book, I contend that no uh, freshman seemed less likely to succeed than Calvin because he was skinny. He was quiet. He wasn't tall. He wasn't a good student, and he didn't even appear to be a good talker. Also, Amherst was a college with plenty of good talkers, including many wealthy young men. It was a men's school from New York. And there was Coolidge, who was kind of a hayseed as a freshman, certainly. What did he do when he graduated? It wasn't clear what he was going to do in a kind of poll of seniors where the other young men put what they were going to do, you know, divinity school, law. Coolidge put, uh, I don't know or nothing which is sometimes what a young person will do when they're irritated by adults asking them what they're going to do after senior year. But he was he did end up reading law. He did not attend law school. The Coolidge's thought that was kind of expensive. So he ended up clerking as Lincoln had. He clerked for a firm called Hammond and Field in Northampton, which was a veritable metropolis. Ultimately, he runs for office. Is that correct? Yeah. And his, his law firm was a, an active law firm. So one of the, the fellows there was in the city government and Coolidge gets involved and he he starts in the local jobs as a runner for the party of his partner who he worked for, which is the Republican Party. And it's all the little posts. He clerks for the town and eventually um, becomes a state rep and then state senator. This all being from, say, 1900 to 1918. And uh, then he goes back and is mayor of Northampton. Actually, he's mayor of Northampton somewhere in between there. And then state senator and then lieutenant governor and then governor. Very gradual climb. All right. So he runs for governor. Did he aspire to be governor? Was that one of his career ambitions? And did he win the governorship this first time he ran for it? I believe he won the first time he ran for it. He was a deliberate man. This was in a period where party mattered more, and he he did serve within the Republican Party. He was not an independent. You know, the way you think of today, 
in the era of partisan politics, he was a loyal servant of the party that happened to be his, the GOP. And he once said, if nobody is partisan, nobody can be independent. That is, independents are free riders on our willingness to be partisan. He was aware of the pitfalls of partisanship, that is, being loyal to a party, right or wrong. Okay, so he gets elected governor, and he does one thing as governor, which gets enormous amount of attention and makes him a national figure. What is that? It was a very rough year when he came to serve his first term as governor. It was 1919, coming out of World War I, very uh, much like the current era, there was an epidemic, the influenza. I would say prices were going up, and some people said it was supply chain, and other people said it was inflation, but they were going up rather quickly. Wages were not keeping up, and many of the veterans were unhappy. Uh, many were wounded you know, in World War I, and there were no antibiotics. So there were strikes. There was a sense um, on the part of labor, which had politely waited through the war not to strike during the war, that it was time, particularly given the cost of living. And among the many groups that went on strike in 1919 were the police of Boston, who by a quirk in the Bay State law report through a chain to the governor of the state, who is this new governor, Calvin Coolidge. So that was very exciting uh, and a difficult challenge for, for Calvin. So the police go on strike, and he famously says there's no right of anybody to strike in this kind of situation. Is that correct? That's right. They were encouraged by Sam Gompers of the AFL, but the police contract said no strikes. They were in the public sector. There wasn't public sector unionism as we have it today. There was looting in Boston. The uh, Nordstrom, so to speak, that is the the finest department stores were heavily looted. Looting is not new. And Coolidge, as governor, had to call in the National Guard to keep the peace in Boston. It was a tough decision for him to do anything about the police. Why? Because they were his constituents. Coolidge was known for getting the immigrant vote. In Boston, the police were Irish-Americans. They were his constituency. There's a whole University of Chicago dissertation about Coolidge's connection to immigrant Americans in Western Mass, where he's from. So there they were, people who would have voted for him in the past. And he has an election coming up because at that time, governors in Massachusetts were elected annually. But he did oversee the police commissioner, back the police commissioner up in firing the policeman because of the breach of contract. And he said, there's no right to strike against the public safety by anybody, anywhere, anytime. He thought he would lose the election because of that. He thought he would lose popularity. The policemen were nice people who were indeed underpaid. But President Wilson actually backed him up. And it was a turning moment for the country. And across the country, his remarks reverberated. There's no right to strike against the public safety. And that put him in the vice presidential slot. What happened was he became very famous for that statement. And then when Warren Harding was nominated on the Republican Party ticket for president in 1920, he selected Calvin Coolidge. Did Coolidge seek that position or was he surprised to get it? I would say uh, he made himself open to it. Okay. Coolidge was, I won't say coy because that's too negative, but he really believed a job had to come to you. He, he always taught young people, but I, I think he was quite open to it. He had a booster named Frank Stearns who owned a big department store. 
And that department store in Boston was an important part of Boston. And Mr. Stearns published Coolidge's book, a book of his speeches, which is called Have Faith in Massachusetts, became a campaign item. It was an example of successful campaign literature and inspired Republicans. So I would say insofar as Coolidge allowed, which is all you need to do, of course, this was an interesting prospect. Uh, his friend Dwight Morrow uh, wanted him perhaps to be the presidential candidate. He didn't get that. He was just a governor no one had heard of until the strike. But he did get the Veep slot. He gets the vice presidential nomination in 1920 with Warren Harding. Uh, they're running against uh, Governor Cox and Franklin Delano Roosevelt as vice president. And they win. And then Harding dies as president and Coolidge becomes president. Um, in the normal course of things. Was he um, surprised that Harding died suddenly? And did he really seek to be president of the United States? I think, you know, Coolidge was vice president, which was a useful education for him, as he says in his autobiography, to watch, right? He and Harding had gone to Washington on a very specific platform. And that's quite important because it's the kind of platform we tend to lack today. Taxes were quite high. The capital gains tax rate, for example, there was no legal clarity as to whether cap gains, this important tax for business, was ordinary income or not. So either cap gains weren't taxed at all or they were taxed in the 70% range. That made business confused and chilled the markets. And they said, we want normalcy, by which they didn't mean everyone be normal like a cog. They meant we want a relatively normal environment so markets can revive after the war. And then they committed to attack a, a series of both tax cuts and clarifications of the code to establish more certainty, both in the nature of the tax code and the direction of tax rates, which they promised would be down. So Harding had his tax cuts. He had Andrew Mellon, the one of the greatest treasury secretaries right up there, I think, with Hamilton. And then Harding passed away and Coolidge picked up the baton. And whether he wanted it or not, he was sure it was his obligation. And uh, that gave him confidence as well. All right. So Coolidge gets to be president. And then um, he has an opportunity to run for election on his own. Does he want to run for president on his own? Well, yes, he did. I, he didn't say he wouldn't, put it that way. And he did. And, uh, he, you know, the Republicans were losing. He was a Republican. The Republicans were losing steam. Uh, it became particularly clear subsequent to Harding's passing away that there were scandalous aspects to the Harding government, in particular Teapot Dome, uh, where sweetheart contracts were handed out to friends of friends of the White House. Why is that so terrible? Because Harding had promised essentially to privatize. And if you're going to privatize and say it's better to have privatization and have companies such as oil leases, say, in, in private hands, you better do it well. Otherwise, there's a strong argument for opponents that the government can do that better, manage the oil reserves. So Harding besmirched his own endeavor and Coolidge was cleaning up. All right. So Coolidge runs for re-election, in effect. And he gets elected. Is that right on his own? It's his first elected election as president. So it's his first elected term. He doesn't only get elected on his own. Usually it was a three-party race. As I was saying, the Republicans were losing steam. So were the Democrats. And there was this new party, the La Follette Progressives. 
they got 16% of the popular vote. Usually when that happens, it's an ugly race and whoever wins just gets a plurality. Coolidge actually took an absolute majority of the votes, beating the Democrats and the progressives with that 16% combined. So what does he do in his first fully elected term? He's elected on his own. What would you say his major accomplishment was at that period of time? One was to finish the tax program. He and Andrew Mellon, his treasury secretary, and they were very close. They were, uh, you know, they, they were a team vowed to get the income tax rates down to 25. And they did. The top marginal rate, which inspired Ronald Reagan, for example, uh, when they were done, was 25. Uh, they vowed not to betray people. And they, they sort of had a culture where they didn't want to change tax rates a lot on people because they know how hard that is for people to have the rules change all the time. They believed in reestablishing trust with the electorate, which is a concern we have today, trust from the electorate. They did what they said over and over again in order to show that voters could trust them. And whether you you liked or didn't like a specific policy, particularly of Coolidge, what people did like about him is he did what he said. He wasn't too tricky. So did he, I was famous for um, not talking very much. And did he take a lot of pride in not making long speeches or not speaking very frequently? Well, it's a very odd, I mean, we've all had callings like this, right? You go in a meeting and they grunt once. It's kind of a power thing too, isn't it? You know, powerful leaders sometimes wait for other people to talk because uh, the the other people in the room wind up and give their, um, you know, their elevator pitch and the powerful person is silent. That was partly foolish. He was certainly capable of talking, but no, he didn't talk a lot. I don't think it was because he was shy, because I don't think anyone who is capable of becoming U.S. president is really predominantly shy. <laughs> It's just right. So he he was he was economic with words when it suited him, and also as I say, because he's from a farming community, and farmers, uh, at least in my experience, don't talk as much. Now the, he was uh, famous for taking naps every day. Was that part of his lifelong habit? Yeah, but you know, all presidents have their quirks. He he worked very hard. And he worked with great discipline on um, not only the tax issue, but also, I would say, on sustaining traditional federalism. If you look at his executive orders, and I'm hoping to get someone to do a serious study of them, they were mostly about reinforcing federalist law up to that time. So he was different from a progressive who would have less use for federalism, less use for states. Coolidge believed that states were the basis of America. And in, in you want to remember at that time, at least in peacetime, Washington was a smaller part of the U.S. economy than the states were taken together. He has an opportunity to theoretically have run for a re-election again in 1928 but he chose not to do so. Why did he not run again? Um, well, you know, he happened to be in South Dakota in the summer of 27 when he was making this decision. So what was going on in South Dakota at that time? The sculptor Gutzon Borglum was up there beginning to lay the dynamite to put the great profiles of the president into this Black Hills granite. And Coolidge was there and he was thinking about whether to run again. 
And he thought uh, in particular about Theodore Roosevelt, as you know very well, didn't run again and then did run again. And Coolidge had seen that in 1912 with the Bull Moose Party. And he was thinking about George Washington, who was also going up. And uh, I think it's pretty clear Coolidge wanted to be more like Washington. He believed, as he put it, that we ought to change leadership from time to time. He also said, uh, it's a great advantage to a president and a great safety to the country for the president to know he is not a great man. So um, he decides not to run in 1928. His uh, Secretary of Commerce, I guess, uh, Herbert Hoover, ultimately gets the nomination and he gets elected. And now uh, Coolidge retires. Where does he retire Does he retire to Palm Beach, Florida, or does he go back to Vermont? He goes back to Massachusetts, where he had his grown-up career as an attorney and young politician, to his house. And what's particularly uh, charming about the Coolidge's is they never owned their own house in Northampton. They rented half a two-family on Massasoit Street, uh, which one can still see. They were very modest. He had housing in the background. He owned his family land in Vermont. So they tried living in this this half house, but the crowds kept coming. It's hard to imagine, but Coolidge was enormously popular. He certainly would have been reelected in 28. So eventually he wrote some magazine, he got a fat magazine contract, the way one would get a book contract today. And he he paid for a little bit grander house, but not very grand, called The Beaches in Northampton with a a bit of a distance from the door to the street so that the crowds couldn't go right onto his porch. But he passed away very soon, so he didn't get to enjoy the beaches for long. How many years did he live after he left the presidency? Well, he left the presidency in 29, and he died in January of 33. And where is he buried? He is buried in Plymouth Notch, Vermont, and we have an exhibit uh, about that here at Coolidge House in Washington. But uh, all summer in Plymouth, we've been hosting people to see his grave, and his grave is quite Coolidge. It's not the tallest grave in the cemetery. When uh, Ronald Reagan was elected president, he put Coolidge's portrait in the cabinet room. What was that supposed to symbolize? I, I think it was supposed to symbolize both the tax effort Um, Because Reagan, too, cut taxes, but also Coolidge's view that some union actions may not be uh, good for America. So Reagan had a very famous strike of air traffic controllers. The group was called PATCO. And again, that's a difficult strike because the air traffic controllers were nice people who worked hard and had a difficult job, no question. But the strike jeopardized public safety. And Reagan did read uh, one bio of Coolidge, uh, General Meese, Ed Meese once told me that, around that time. Uh, And it was similar, Coolidge's police strike action and Reagan's decision to be tough on the air traffic controllers. So for those people that have not read your excellent book on Coolidge, but might be inclined to do so, why would you tell people they should learn more about Calvin Coolidge and what does he mean Uh, to America today? Well, he was the president who never said anything mean about anyone else that I could find. He really did not like Louis Brandeis, but you don't find any public document. He never smeared people. And that's important to all of us now that we get along and find common ground. Uh, Two, he had an economic model that actually worked 
contra some history books, that is, the prosperity of the 20s wasn't a champagne bubble in Jay Gatsby's glass. It was a very interesting period when we saw huge productivity gains, so huge that we got Saturday off, which we hadn't had heretofore. The U.S. was a six-day-a-week country for the same pay. So we, a lot of innovations that we count as important in modern life, um, such as indoor plumbing or electricity or home appliances, came in under that Coolidge economy. So so that's interesting. Uh, he had 4% real growth. They didn't have much unemployment. He was very aware that the U.S. had to be relatively competitive. That is, he knew that another currency could take away our newfound advantage. Um, Sterling in those days could have again become dominant, as it had been. And he was interested in currency and interest rate competition, which is relevant today with new alternate currencies or you know challenges. He was aware of that because the dollar wasn't sort of king forever, as in the modern attitude then. And he knew it. He knew that our advantage was tenuous and that we must pay attention to what happened in Europe, to the economies, and that money can move around the globe. And you want someone who understands that um, in leadership positions nowadays. Now, finally, uh, Calvin Coolidge was happily married his entire life to somebody he met relatively uh, as a young man. Did he have children or any of his grandchildren or great-grandchildren are alive today? Oh, absolutely. And if you want to study a marriage, the Coolidge marriage is is amusing and interesting and compelling to study because it, 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 being a first lady is tough. And Mrs. Coolidge also wrote about that, but they stuck together. She played the extrovert to the introvert he played. I say play because again, politics theater, but she was an instructor of the deaf. She was the first first lady, as far as I know, to have professional training on top of a BA from University of Vermont. They had two sons, John and Calvin, and the great tragedy, which is one he shares with Lincoln, is one of his sons died while he was in the White House. It was Calvin Jr. And uh, this is a story some of us were told because Calvin Jr. died because of a blister playing tennis. He was a boy who grew fast. Probably his his old sneakers did not fit. And this was just before we got antibiotics. And their whole, um, you know, schools of thought that say President Coolidge was depressed ever after and, you know, incapacitated by that grief. He was very sad. I don't think he was incapacitated in my analysis, but uh, you have to look at it yourself. And Calvin was a, a very likable boy, too. Uh, he worked in a tobacco field in Massachusetts. We have those in Massachusetts. And someone said, well, if my father were president, I would never work in a tobacco field. And Calvin said, well, if my father were your father, you would. Coolidge insisted his son's work. So it was such a loss for that family. Two of the direct descendants and other relations are on my foundation board at the Coolidge Foundation, Jenny Coolidge Harville and Christopher Coolidge Jeter. And then Dave Coolidge, who's a cousin from Chicago, is also on our board. So we like Coolidge's. They teach us all about their family um, and their leaders at our foundation. So we've been in discussion today with Amity Schles on her biography on Coolidge, called Coolidge. Uh, Ms. Schles, thank you very much for speaking with us today. It was a terrific conversation. Well, thank you for this honor. On behalf of the New York Historical Society, thank you for joining us for another episode of For the Ages, a history podcast hosted by David Rubenstein. 
We hope you enjoyed it and come back for more. Thanks for your support. You can share your thoughts at public.programs at nyhistory.org.